The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on RadioCarry.ie or on the traditional wireless 96 to 98 FM. If you're only getting up, if you're wiping the sleep from your eyes, it's a glorious morning out there across the kingdom. The sun is splitting the stones again. What have we done to deserve this wonderful weather? It's absolutely fantastic. And we got a bit of rain as well, which the farmers won't mind over um, the last few days um, as well but it is beautiful and we're bathed in glorious sunshine if you want to get in touch with the programme 0667123666 you can text the WhatsApp 0833003300 I was driving down there during the weekend along Kells Bay looking across the West Kerry and the blaskets were they were just mesmeric I was looking at them the rays were coming through the clouds and it's almost I keep mentioning this it's like do you ever remember that programme Highway to Heaven it was like that you know um, it's just absolutely spectacular and we have a documentary on the lighthouses coming out and it reminds me of the you know the lighthouse that was out in the Tirocton or is in the Tirocton and um, all the wonderful coastal lighthouses we have around uh, this county they must have been spectacular places to stay on and to live on. I know it was a tough life, but at the same time, I'd imagine you'd appreciate it on mornings like this morning. Very busy programme. Um, we'll be visiting Paul O'Neill of Island Organics on Valencia Island to see his new bee bed. Now, the idea of bee beds is as old as beekeeping itself, but has been a long forgotten as an alternative form of therapy. However, it is merging again as people are seeking a deeper form of natural healing. We'll hear from Father Tony Gahan on his new uh, book, um, on his book reviews. We'll have another episode of Bloss of Kerry, where we provide an insight into the amazing variety of family food businesses represented in Kerry. And in this episode, I visited Drummond, where we hear from Colin Griffin of Forest Farm Free Range eggs. And we'll also have our speaking of poetry with Bernadette Nee Riada. And we'll be speaking about acclaimed poet Elizabeth Bishop. Now, into the very busy programme. Get in touch with us 66 You can text WhatsApp 083-300-3300. Historian, author, priest, father Tony Gunn has written and published several acclaimed volumes on Irish historical figures including Austin Stack, Portrait of a Separatist and Alfred O'Rahilly controversialist. He has written two memoirs at the Coalface, the Columbia Press and Recollections of a Writer by Accident and that's Kingdom Books published at. Originally from Listowel, he's a former parish priest in the Archdiocese of Dublin and if that's not enough, he's one of the founding members of Listowel Writers Week. I could be here all morning telling uh, about all his accomplishments but I better get to the man himself. Father uh, Tony, you're very welcome. How are you this morning? Excellent, and many thanks for having me on your program, Joe. Yeah, now the reason we have you on is you uh, launched your new book, More Book Reviews, 1986 to 2023, Reviews of Works by Distinguished Biographers, Historians, Philosophers and Writers. Now, you, this is not your first book on book reviews, but how did the idea of a book on book reviews come about? Well, I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I told him how many of these reviews I had in hand and he suggested that um, a collection of them might be of interest. 
Yeah, and there's quite a variety in here, isn't there? Oh, yes. And the current book, more book reviews, they're on 27 different topics, ranging from autobiography right down to urban history. Yeah, um, I was just thinking there, uh, Father, what does it take to be a good reviewer? Well, first of all, you have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> There's no shortage there by you, I'd say. <laughs> and, um, and then have an interest in the topic. And do you know, like, often when you hear, like, I suppose, a reviewer, and then there's critics. Like, are you very critical in your reviews? Are you just kind of, I suppose, uh, summing up what, what, what's said in the book? Or what's your approach to that? Well, I, I tend to not to be overcritical because um, I think everybody should be complimented and, uh, and encouraged in their work. So I, I, uh, I certainly uh, wouldn't be uh, keen on... Uh, on negative reviewing, which I think is is a pity. Mm. Um, no, I, I, I'm astounded at the amount of books that you have reviewed, but the quality of them as well. And I've had a few of the authors of these books on the um, the program as well. We're very lucky, aren't we, with the, the the writers we have? Oh, you have. You have a great selection of uh, writers, especially at the moment when it's so easy now to get books printed. There are more and more people actually writing books and memoirs than ever before because it's so easy to do it with all the new technology. Mm. Um, and for the books you've reviewed, um, can you give us kind of, a, I suppose, an example, like I mentioned the variety, of, of what books you are reviewing in it? Well, uh, autobiography are the most interesting books because the most interesting thing about people are their lives and their account of their lives and their lives and they see their own lives so I find autobiographies the most interesting books of all and I'm also very keen of course on Irish history our own history What, what I notice as well um, Father Tony is it's, it's like um, you know it gives you a synopsis of each book which I think is brilliant because like I could pick up your book now and, 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 and I did and there was a few um, of the chapters I was going through I said jeez I must get that book I must get that book I must get that one so it's brilliant from that perspective isn't it it kind of gives you an, an insight into all the, the amazing books that are out there yeah my friend um, just to give you an idea my friend Felix Larkin wrote a very good um, paragraph on the whole purpose of book reviews and I'll read it for you if I yeah, may do, yeah. the main purpose of a book review and perhaps its only justification is to introduce the book to readers who might be unaware of it and may indeed never read it the review should outline the contents of a book and engage with the author's argument highlighting how if at all, the book adds to the sum of human knowledge. It should suggest why someone, not necessarily everyone, might like to read the book. So basically that's the whole purpose of book reviewing. Mm. You've reviewed quite a number of Kerry books, haven't you? Give us an example of those. Uh, let me think now. Um, well, of course, um, I wrote a book on, as you, as you mentioned, on Austin Stack. Yeah and then Alfred O'Rahilly, mm -hmm. and then Tom O'Donnell, you're probably not 
beware of him. He was an MP for West Kerry, and he founded the Kerry Dingle Railway. And um, he was the granduncle of a friend of mine, Dermot Kindlin. And at um, Dermot's request, I wrote a book on him as well. So, um, and then of course I did um, history of North Kerry. So I'm very keen on 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 our own Kerry history. Yeah, and again, like I said, I think we're so lucky in the people that have been writing these books as well. They're of such a, a high standard, and in some cases, people like you know are are, are dedicating years and years to writing um, these books. Um, great book on the Crosbys as well, and you you review that in your uh, book as well. That's correct. Yes. Mm. Um, how important is it, Father, uh, that we I suppose support? these books and you know that we do continue uh, to go and, and, and buy these books because like you said I suppose right there's a lot of people publishing you mentioned because of modern technology but then we're competing for all those things in, in the book world as well you know with Netflix and streaming and all this how important is it that we go into our local bookshop and buy a book that is very important because that's the way you encourage people and so and make it possible for them to actually write and publish books because if they don't get any financial support they won't be able to do it yeah um, now I know uh, recently you, you launched a book but you also donated uh, some of your awards or your awards to Kerry Writers Museum as well so I want to find out about um, that so we will take a break but I just wanted to mention that book again actually that I was talking about was the Crosbys of Cork Kerry Leash and, and Linster the Kerry Crosbys um, it's a, a fantastic um, book and there is um, examples of all of these fantastic books in um, Father Tony Gunn's book more book reviews 1986 to 2023 and there's Michael Christopher Keane I should mention the author as well that's important uh, was the author of that book The Crosby's of Cork Kerry Leash and Linster we're going to take a break Father Tony's going to stay with us we'll have more after these The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home Tralee 0667123666 you can text WhatsApp 0833033300 we're talking to Father uh, Tony Gohan about his new book more book reviews 1986 to 2023 and it's a fantastic collection of uh, book reviews um, I, uh, like I said and it covers a load of the books that are um, wonderful books here in Kerry but further afield uh, uh, as well um, and Father Tony is the author I was looking at 45 books uh, so it's some about the books himself um, Father Tony, I won't ask you which is your least favourite book you've reviewed, but in, in this collection, what are, what are among your more favourite ones that stand out to you? Well, I love reviewing books on Irish history because I have a great interest in our own history, mm. and especially all around the revolutionary period between 1916 and 1923. That's a period I have a tremendous interest in. Mm. How do you think that was handled, um, you know, documenting that? Because I'd imagine, um, and Tony, you're around a while now, so you'd know this, but maybe um, the, that, the, that topic wasn't gone into as in much depth, say, 50 years ago as it is to now, that people were able to tackle it. And how do you think it has been covered that period of time? I thought it was very well covered because uh, when we were growing up, we heard very little about the... Uh, Civil War, and I think that was a good thing. There was a sort of a silence over it because um, memories were very raw, and that was the best way to cover it. And it's only now, in the last few years, that um, it has been um, sort of uh, brought to the fore 
but I think that was a good policy because um, uh, when, ne- when memories were raw, it's as well not to be uh, over emphasizing what happened at that time. It was too soon afterwards. Mm. Um, now, one of your best-known books uh, of local interest is *The Stall and Its Vicinity*, and it. it uh, uh, I, I was reading during the week that it's a much sought-after collector's item as well. That l- l- lots of people want to have their hands on that, and so you're a proud Listowel man. And and recently, um, you um, donated uh, your awards um, at at, at Listowel Writers Week, and um, uh, what was that like for you? It was a, an honour, really, because uh, I got in touch with Cara Trent, who is in charge of the... Kerry um, Writers Museum, yeah, I should say, yeah. Mm. And uh, she was delighted to take them, and I was very honoured to have, have them down there. So I brought them down there about six or eight weeks ago, and um, I'm glad I did that, because then an auction after my passing on, they would be spread all over the place. Yeah. And that's that's important to you, like... Um, you're list all true and true, aren't you? You're proud of it. Oh yes, I, I proudly represented Listowel in the football field, the Listowel Emmets, mm-hmm. and the um, and then the North Kerry County Championship team. And I was a sub in the minor team that won the All Ireland in 1953. And I was a member of the junior team that won the All Ireland in 1952. Um, two years later. So um, I regarded wearing the Kerry jersey one of the greatest honours I ever had. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's such a, a success story as well. I heard that to build a new wing in the Kerry Writers Museum for all those awards as well that, that, you, <laughs> <laughs> that you brought out. Uh, but uh, you don't mind telling people your age, do you? For not that not that it's relevant, but I think it, it, the reason I'm saying it is because you've covered and captured such a breadth of our history and our, our social history and everything else, and in, in capturing these book reviews as well, it's so important. I'm ninety-one. Ninety-one. Wow. At a of Shem Satira, Pat is a classmate of mine, and also Garoda Dunahoo. Whoa. We were together in the news. And we in the same class. Yes. Jeez, that was a fairly ins- inspirational class to be involved in. What was it like to be involved in that class? Were you good friends? Oh, there, there were 65 altogether in the class. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, the, they were the um, two of the lads from Kerry, and I was from Dublin. Oh, um, that's I didn't I didn't realise that. No, I only interviewed Father Pat not too long ago. There, um, a, another am, amazing man, um, Father Tony. Thanks a million for coming on. And if people want to avail of this book because it's very digestible, um, the book as well, which I think is absolutely fantastic. I think it's for everyone really. And if people want to avail of it, where do they go? They can go to uh, the bookshops in in Listowel and in Dublin, Veritas, and um, and um, the bookshop in Donnybrook and uh, also they can get in touch with me very good well we wish you the best of luck with it um, congratulations on, on, on its publication and also um, um, uh, well done on um, the donation that you did a few weeks ago to Kerry Writers Museum I think it's absolutely um, fantastic the, all those uh, awards are there to be preserved now but likewise all the books you've done are so important um, to preserving our history in this county as well and uh, again you're bringing these books as well that you're reviewing to more people as well which I think is vital so thanks uh, uh, a million for coming on and talking to us this morning. Joe, many, many thanks.
That's Father Anthony Gohan there, and his new book is More Book Reviews, 1986 to 2023. Now, for something different, I went along to Valencia Island to visit Paul O'Neill of Island Organics and uh, to see his new bee bed. And the idea of bee beds is as old as beekeeping itself, but has been long, long forgotten as an alternative form of therapy. However, it is emerging again as people are seeking a deeper form of natural healing. Um, it's actually a spectacular location where uh, Paul is um, situated and uh, he he has a, a unique business as well in that um, he grows micro greens as well and one of his main goals of Island Organics is to teach people young and old that they have the ability to grow their own food in their own house through microgreens. and if they want to keep bees they can and if they want to propagate plants they can do this too and Paul O'Neill wants to help people to learn how to do this so have a listen to this Valencia Island Paul, thanks a million for welcoming me in here. Um, we're sitting in an unusual location. Tell us all about it first before we talk about Island Organics. So this is the bus or the boffice. So uh, it's my office and it's a bus. It's a 60-seater Volvo Plaxton and it still works. It still runs. Why a bus? Well, budget. <laughs> the price of building anything is, is crazy and the price of a container was crazy. So um, I had to think outside the box a bit. So uh, I decided, well, with a bit of prompting from my wife, I decided to get a bus. And uh, she's, I inquired about it in the night. And next of all, before I knew it, a guy brought it down here to Valencia. So I cleared it out and it's a big, big space. Um, so right now it's kind of used as a workshop and as a plant room for all my succulents and things and I do my uh, teaching workshops in here as well it's a great environment for plants it's very cosy and it's just beautiful yeah and I follow you on social media as well it looks great on, on, on social media and all that we're looking out at a spectacular view here um, as I'm talking to you I can see the Skelligs and the little Skelligs Skellig Vihil I can look over at Kerry Cliffs down in the village of Port McGee I can almost see my own house from here as well which is a big <laughs> highlight um, it's a stunning place to, to work, isn't it? Oh, it's unreal. It's unreal. Um, sometimes I think living in South Kerry, we all take it a bit for granted. Um, when people come up here, they're just in awe. Um, but on a fine day like today, I just do, there's a calming. It just makes you calm and gives you a kind of a sense of peace. Mm. So yourself and Roisin, you set up Island Organics when and why? Uh, I suppose about three or four years ago. Um, I always tried everything, Joe, uh, all sorts of jobs. And I studied engineering and, and was into satellite and computers and all this. Um, but uh, I never really got any satisfaction from it. And I just started doing a small bit of gardening, trying to grow veg and things like that. And then I discovered um, propagation. So I started propagating plants and then I started studying it. And I went to the, the organic college in Limerick and I started studying. I, I just felt... I felt like it was for me. It just felt so natural. There's, a, It's not like a job or anything. Working with plants, bees and animals, to me, is just what we should be teaching in our schools to our children. Mm. And how does it work as a business then? What do you do? So there's about, I suppose there's three, three sides to this business. One is growing microgreens. Microgreens are growing veg, growing vegetables, growing herbs and edible flowers. Doing it in a small space, in a very short space of time, you can grow broccoli in, let's say, one week. So you can seed it. And in one week? In one week. 
and the nutrients in that broccoli will be 30 times more than the fully grown plant. So that's one side to the business. And I, I grow microgreens because that's how I feed my family. We're a family of vegetarians and I grow them for myself and then the extra I sell then to customers. But uh, the other side of it then is my other passion, which is plants, ornamental plants. Uh, I like bonsai. I love succulents. I'm just mad about plants. And I've been collecting plants for, I suppose, about 10 years. And after a while, I collected so many plants, I said, well, Roisin said, what are you going to do with them all? <laughs> so I said, right, I better start selling. And right, we're going to set up some sort of a business. Um, so then well, when you study plants and you get interested in plants and you start to look into propagation, you can't help but touch on uh, pollination. And once you start thinking about pollination, you have to st start thinking about insects. And in particular, I started looking at bees. I looked at a documentary about beekeeping and er, about bees and about the dangers that bees are fa facing because of the use of pesticides and stuff. Colonies are just collapsing and disappearing because of pesticides. So the, the world needs help with bees. And I decided I'm going to help the world. And I just said, right, I'm going to start keeping bees. And I just did a one day course and that's all. I just started and I've made every mistake in the book and I learned from my mistakes and uh, I, I became a beekeeper. I'm still a novice beekeeper. It could take you 50 years to become an expert at beekeeping. They're absolutely fascinating creatures because um, I mentioned this before we started, but the Beaufort beekeepers, I've, I've visited them a few times and they're, they're an amazing group of individuals, but they've taught me so much about bees. Mike O'Shea, another man in Drummond, um, he, he has a, a beautiful love affair with the bees as, as well. But they are amazing, aren't they? Some of the stuff you were telling me there. Tell us a bit about that. Well, they're absolutely fascinating. Uh, once I started... I looked at, as I said, one documentary and that just opened my mind up and I couldn't. Once once something kind of grabs my attention like that, I just can't help but just delving deeper and deeper into how things work. And when I started to look at how the beehives work, there, we, 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 don't, we don't give plants, animals, bees, we don't give them enough... Um, Credibility? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for... Um, there's a lot more going on, I think, that, than we know about. They're very intelligent. Inside in the beehive, you have... They have a whole... It's like this whole setup of a community. Some people... You have nurse bees, which are taking care of the young. You have the foragers, who are out foraging for uh, nectar and pollen and propolis and things like that. And then you have the drones, which uh, is a funny story in themselves. Drones, drones are kind of like... The ladies, they're the men, okay? Yeah. Remember this, all all the bees that are, all the foragers are female. Right. So they're doing all the work. Now, the drones don't do really anything. The only, the only thing a drone is there to do is go out and mate with a virgin queen. So that's their job. They have a great life. They have a great life for a while. Uh, and, and they just feed inside in the hive and they don't do any work. So, uh, so when we're coming into the, the autumn, and uh, the foraging, there's not much to forage on and stuff like that. The bees have to think of the winter coming. So um, drones, all they do is use up resources. So the drones, unfortunately, are kicked out of the hive. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And after the break, we're going to find out all about this famous bee bed. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. 
Now let's return to Island Organics and Paul O'Neill and Valencia Island about his new bee bed. So how did the idea for bee beds uh, come along then? Because you're the only one in Ireland and, and probably in this side of Europe almost there isn't yeah. that many either you were saying well I suppose you could say it's down to uh, it's down to Vladimir Putin it's kind of down to the war Joe because yeah. um, about a year ago when this whole mess in Ukraine started to happen and uh, all these poor Ukrainians had to leave their own home and country because it was being wrecked and ravaged um, and they came to every corner of Ireland and all over Europe and here in the middle of nowhere on Valencia Island, I was out beekeeping one day and a family just walked by and I seen uh, a guy just waving to me. So um, I waved back and uh, he didn't have much English and he just, he kind of told me he was a beekeeper. So I said, come on up. And uh, we started doing a bit of beekeeping together. And over time, we started talking more and more and we became friends. And about three months ago, that this is Anton, uh, about three months ago, Anton came to me and he said, you know, they do this kind of a therapy in the Ukraine and they do some in Russia and in various places around the world. This therapy is as old as beekeeping itself, but it's like everything. It was just kind of, it was forgotten. Do you know, we've kind of turned our back on, on the healing properties of nature. And the thing with the bee beds is, it's a house and there's beds in the house. Under the beds there is hundreds and thousands of bees. Bees have a vibration. Your body has a vibration. A stone has a vibration. Everything has a vibration. How quickly something vibrates, you can refer to as the frequency. So in this life where everything gets tough, where all life is just hard, do you know, we're surrounded by screens, we're bombarded with advertising and information and jobs and everything is rush, rush, rush. And all of that leads to stress, depression, all sorts of anxiety issues and body issues. So when all this happens and you have ailments and you have depression and stuff, your frequency is kind of changed and it goes off. So the bees have a frequency that is very close to that of our optimal frequency. So, and through a thing called resonance, when you lie on the beehives, you can nearly call it you're calibrating your body. So you're trying to calibrate the body back to its optimum frequency. Whoa. So have you tried it and what's it like being inside? Because I know I'm going to be going down there now and trying it out. <laughs> um, I have four kids here now, so I don't get to do it as often enough because uh, my, myself and Anton and Roisin, we're all just running around trying to do the business. But every chance I get, I go down to the, the bee house and it's just such an uplifting, energetic positive feeling I get from there I just feel I just feel great when I go down there even for a few minutes I just love it it's kind of like it brings you nearly straight into a state of meditation hmm. and who would it help do you think I think it'd help anyone who just who just needs to slow down and just be still we've all forgotten how to do nothing because every time we have five minutes free or two minutes free we're on the phone so we've all forgotten how to relax and there's people who can't sleep and there's people that are just full of anxiety and full of depression and there's people with uh with uh 
we'll say cardiovascular issues and breathing difficulties and all of these things can be healed from the hive because there's a number of things there's not just one thing happening down there there's a number of things there's the micro vibration which when you're lying down if you're very sensitive you feel it I can feel it um, but regardless if you feel it or not it's happening this calibration is happening to your body there's also the smell inside in the hive there's a lot going on um, there's a lot of pollen in there there's propolis they're making the honey there's the wax there's there's so many things going on and all of this there's a smell that comes off it and remember smell is kind of like little particles of that thing so you're getting particles of honey pollen propolis wax and all the air that comes into the bee house is fed through the entrance of the beehives and through vents inside so the air is super therapeutic on the lungs mm. and i've had we've had people in here all week and there was one lady who was just crying from the feeling there was another lady who her, her back was sore and her neck was sore and that subsided inside there so what we're doing now is just trying to get people down here to experience the bee house now from a healing point of view um, if you were kind of serious and you have problems you'd want to be returning but we want everyone to come down and experience the experience of the bee house and is there proof of this working anywhere? There is. There's a lot of proof. And uh, if you search up bee beds, just search up bee beds and search up AP healing. Because that's what we're not... This goes back, Joe, this is as old as beekeeping. AP therapy or AP healing is just the use of bees, bee products to heal the body. There is countless studies done about the benefits of using all the bee products and of lying on the on the bees and it goes back as old as beekeeping uh, we're going to taste some of your uh, products here as well um, so yeah. tell us what, what have we so we're interested in bees and bee products mm -hmm. and myself and Anton have been working on our own tincture of propolis now propolis, what is propolis yeah propolis is like bee glue the bees collect propolis from different kinds of trees and then they use it to patch up any cracks in the hive and stick everything together and make sure everything is really strong and tight so but propolis is like the most natural antibiotic um, and it cleanses your body and it's not dangerous like sometimes when you take these chemical antibiotics they kind of make you tired and there's side effects but your body will thank you for taking pro propolis and you can give it to your kids safely so I'm going to just give you a small bit of propolis here so this is our own and this is um, mixed with a, a high content of uh, pure alcohol mm. okay so it looks uh, honey colored and it's just a bit more liquid really okay, smell it. oh you can smell the alcohol as well yeah, yeah. and the honey yeah it smells lovely actually so and it will have a little reaction to the to the water when we put it in Right, so we've two glasses of a uh, uh, bit of water in the bottom of them, and you're going to add in the propolis now. Yeah, and watch the reaction now. So for 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 an adult show, you can take like ten to fifteen drops. Wow, it's um, clouding the water. It's, it's almost beautiful. You can take a video of that. It yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you weren't feeling well, Joe, I would recommend you take about ten days of taking propolis. And if you get a cold, you take propolis. If you get a cold sore, put some propolis on it. You can use propolis for everything. These bee products, like we don't, I don't know, I wish people kind of would look more into 
healing themselves, do you know, or, or, or going to their neighbour, their neighbour who's a beekeeper, or their neighbour who's growing uh, organic veg, and start kind of uh, using each other and, being, you know, creating more of a community again. Now right, we're going to so have a sip of this. Try and throw it back now, because... Throw it back, the whole lot. Yeah, <laughs> it tends to... St it's very sticky, so if oh, it goes yeah. onto your teeth, it'll stick. And right I won't back. be able to talk. <clears throat> you'll be fine. Throw yeah. it back. There, there's, uh, it's not overpowering. I was no, expecting something no, very strong. This no. is, this is, this is grand. It's quite. Do you know what? I could actually drink it as a drink. Yeah, that's <laughs> grand. We might put it into your beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Antibiotic beer. Huh? <laughs> but um, yeah, there's no overpowering taste of yeah, that at all. That's very yeah. easy. That's that's easy peasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, yeah. That, that's one product, Joe. And another, I suppose, is honey. And this is Island Organics honey. So this honey is collected on Valencia Island. How would you like to eat your honey now? Because I was talking to a lot of beekeepers and they might have it in their porridge or they might put it in their tea. Is there any particular way you like it? Well, I like to put it over my cereal. Do you know? Yeah. I like special K with almond milk on that and make sure the honey is nice and liquidy and uh, put it over that. I, I nearly put honey on everything. But I, I love to eat crystallised honey with a spoon just on its own. But uh, I use it. Roisin used it in the salad dressing and use it in everything, really. Yeah. I used to sing a lot and I used to have to take a lot of honey for the vocal cords. Yeah. Because it, yeah. And I found it helped immensely. Yeah. No, mm. there is. There's there's such... It's the sweetest medicine. Yeah. Do you know, if you ever thought of something that tastes so beautiful and sweet but actually heals you, yeah. this is what uh, bee products yeah, are yeah. all about. It, do, so it does feel like quality. Yeah. So this is your your actual honey. Yeah, now. yeah. It's just look at it. It seems paler in in, in color. Is it's, that, it's yeah. pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's heating in this. <laughs> and that's last year's honey, because um, I haven't started harvesting any honey. Oh, that's yet delicious. This year. That's yeah. delicious, Paul. Yeah. Oh, it's really nice. You could just eat that from there with the yeah. and just. I'd say kids would love that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, mm. and your body will thank you for it. Um, um, we'll give you one one, one last one more here. Now this is a pollen, Joe. So do you ever see bees going around and you'll see on the backs of their legs, you'll see there's something, mm. okay? They have these little sacks on the backs of their legs yeah. for collecting pollen. And depending on what flower they're at will depend the color of this. So um, this is what is on the back of the bees' legs when you see them. Whoa. And you see the most amazing, when you're beekeeping and you see the most amazing colors. Yeah. It's amazing. And this has many benefits too. Yeah, because from a distance, I thought it looked like multigrain mustard or something, is that kind of yeah. look. But it's actually, they're loose. Yeah. Yeah. So, am, am I going to eat this now? Is You're going <laughs> to eat this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what does this do for you? Now, some people look at this as being a part of their diet, and some people look at it as being a kind of a medicine. Okay. So, this is pollen so this is from all the flowers everywhere yeah okay it looks like little granules remember basically. bees yeah. make they make the honey with the nectar yeah but they also they make what's called bee bread and royal jelly they use this this is like their flower okay so they use this to make other products in the hive okay so I'm going to give you a yeah. little bit little bit let's have a taste of this that's like a nice biscuit or something I've never tasted this is pollen is it I've never yeah, tasted yeah. I've never tasted pollen in my life I'd actually like that with a cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it has like like bread and bread biscuit there's a lot of honey jeez I'm smelling it though yeah and you can make you can kind of use it as a kind of a 
a building block, let's say, in your, your baking. So yes. you can use it like your flour or something. Okay. Are you going to take us around and we'll let's see the rest of the walk. Yeah, and he does take us around and that's what we're going to hear after the break. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. 066-712-3666. You can text the WhatsApp 083-300-3300. And then it was time to actually visit the bee bed by Paul O'Neill of Ireland Organics. Right, so, Paul, we're, we're walking down towards this wonderful-looking um, building. So you made this yourselves? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of looked at one or two buildings, and then we just kind of made up our own design. Um, and we got most of the materials there locally. Um, yeah, we built it from scratch, from the ground up, Joe. And again, it's looking out of this beautiful view. Um, so it's a wooden structure. I can see now as I'm approaching, I can see the bees busy at work in and out there. So yeah, what are remember, they doing? That's under your bed, Joe. Yeah. So when you're in there lying down, all of these bees are just working away. There are There's a mesh kind of separating because we, we have to vent we want that cleansing air to go into the hive so there are all these vents inside which lets that air inside and uh, like you can we're just talking about the location at night Joe it's absolutely amazing you're looking out at the lights there at Port McGee yeah. and you can actually the Skelligs there yeah, yeah you can book overnight stays at the bee bed mm. so all if right. you're really really serious and you really want full kind of healing yeah. you can stay overnight and you'll have the most serene night sleep ever complete immersive experience so yeah um, how many bees I know you can't Did, count them but um, <laughs> at the minute we have under each bed there's four beehives so we'll just estimate that there could be 50,000 bees in each hive oh. so underneath your bed there could be 200,000 bees Joe right and inside when we walk in there's a there's a hive with a clear front on it and I'm going you'll be able to see all the bees and what they're doing whoa so when I go in now I sit down I lie down on the bed basically and there's no bees in there with there's me. no bees they're under me they're around me yeah, but they can't touch you're yeah. completely safe the bees can't get into you yeah okay let's do it okay I'm ready so, if you just remove your shoes. Wow. So already, Paul, I can see what you're talking about here. You can actually see, this is worth the trip alone, where you can see the bees working away and, and actually doing what they're doing. So what are they doing there? Okay, let's have a look. So, see all around here, you see these pieces, these things that are sticking out. Like this is the wax comb, but these ones that are sticking out, they're male bees under there. So they're drones. Now, up here, you can see the, the kind of glistening honey. So uh, that's honey. Some of these bees are just bringing back nectar. Let's see. See this bee shaking, Joe? Mm -hmm. See him wiggling? Yes. This is the waggle dance. Yes. That bee is telling the other bees where the nectar is. He's giving them a map of where to go to find it. It's absolutely fascinating. Now the queen could be, the queen sometimes you'd see her around here, there's a mark on her back, so uh, it makes her easy to see, but she could be somewhere else right now. But uh, most of these bees, see there, that's a drone. See the big guy? Yeah. That's a drone. Now drones can't sting you, so the big bees can't sting, but all these other smaller ones, they're workers, they're female, and they sting. Okay. Right, so Paul, I'm lying down here. Yeah. In the bed. So you can... We're not in the same bed now, just yeah. for people listening. So there's two beds in here. Move over, John. <laughs> so move down a bit, because I want your head directly over this hive. Now, there. 
there's a lot going on underneath you, Joe. So you can actually hear, and I, I hear, I see what you mean about the vibrations. But there's a consistency to the noise, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And is that the consistency to the vibrations or the frequency you were yeah, talking about? Yeah, exactly. Now the smell in here is also cleansing. It's cleansing your your lungs. You have the vibration. You have the sound. There's a there's a lot of things just kind of exciting the senses, Joe, and kind of relaxing and healing the body. You know, we don't usually when you come into the bee house, you kind of you try and just relax, try and clear your mind, and it's like a meditation, Joe. Mm. Yeah. I could imagine myself here for a, a, a night, Paul, just chilling out. Do you know what I have a fear, real problem with that night is that screen time you mentioned. Yeah. And I think, you know, you'd almost want to shake yourself out of that by doing something completely different yeah. to get out of that routine. Yeah. Now, we're, we're all in that, see, Joe. We all have that problem, kids and adults. And in the, when you come into the bee house, we say you switch your phone off. There's no phones inside here. You don't wear any strong perfumes. You just come in and you lie down and you relax and you let the healing. You, as I say, some people feel the vibration, some people don't, but it's happening anyway. Your body is being calibrated. How long do you need to be in here for it to become anyway effective? Um, an hour is good. Yeah. An hour is good but two hours would be even better. Yeah. And if you're working on something, then you might have to keep coming back mm. for a while. I'd imagine it's something that you, you know, if, if, if this, I want to use a better word than catches on, but if people, um, you know, use this and they want to use it again, you'd almost have a few of these, wouldn't you? Yeah, we definitely, uh, we're, we're, we're already planning on uh, building the second one now yeah. because, um, yeah, we're getting a lot of interest and uh, we, we can see from uh, other countries and stuff that the, the demand is there for alternative types of healing. Mm. I better get up because I was about to fall asleep there, uh, not, not listening to you, but just did the whole... Uh, thing and I could imagine you could easily uh, just drift off and again I'm looking out that there's a door here that is you can see fully out and you're actually looking at the the skelligs um, this is something that I'd imagine would have an international appeal as well for even yeah. tourists to visit this yeah. area that want something different yeah it's just it's an amazing experience if you're not even if you're not he if you're not focusing on healing it's just the experience itself and uh, the surroundings and the setting is just amazing Joe at night I come down here, I could come down here at 12 o'clock. If I couldn't sleep, I'd come down here at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's just amazing. Um, looking out there at Port McGee, lying down, just like meditation. You just feel, you feel peace. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for inviting me down here to see the first one in Ireland as well. And uh, I think it's another great addition to this uh, county. We're always ahead of the curve here in Kerry, which is great. Uh, if you want more information, and yeah. if even on your products that we were talking about earlier, uh, where do they go and where can they get them and where can they find out about the bee beds? Okay, so if you want to make any bookings, book any book the bee beds or book workshops about learning for bees, you can contact me directly on 87 And you can also go on to www.islandorganics.ie or you can look uh, look us up on social media there on Instagram and Facebook and things. Yeah, and I always say this, just Google Island Organics and it comes up there. Remember, so the organics it. has an X. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thanks a minute. It's an absolute Thank pleasure. You. And we wish you the best of luck uh, with this endeavour in the future. Thank you so much, Joe.
Yeah, there you have it. And we do wish him the best of luck. I love outside the box thinking and uh, bees are so important to our ecosystem and everything else. And and this is for our well-being as well. So well done to Paul there. And we wish him the best of luck. We've lots of messages to get to, but we'll go for a break. Then we'll have the news and I'll join you again in the next hour. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. Yes, that's what you listen to. Let's get to a few of your texts on WhatsApp. So, wait, 3 300 Good morning, Joe. Enjoying the show in Listowel, Patrick. How are you doing, Patrick? And we were talking a lot about Listowel this morning. Very interesting listening to Paul O'Neill from Island Organics. He has a great passion in his business and great energy in sharing it with everyone. Best of luck from Sean O'Leary, the goatman from Port McGee. Brilliant and fascinating programme on The Honey Joe. Um, someone else gets in touch there. Um, also, a listener called in saying another writer worth mentioning is Martin Moore from Listowel, who has lots of books about Kerry history, in particular the War of Independence and the Civil War. Yes, and we spoke to Martin on this programme um, before. If you want to get in touch with us by phone, 0667123666. Now, Hannah O'Sullivan, no stranger to this programme, and a former student of mine there for a while in the Broadcasting uh, Centre, um, true transition year. Um, Hannah is from Port McGee and she is fundraising again this year for the Cran Centre for Annual Walk and Roll Fundraiser um, and it's an aid of uh, the Cran Centre and uh, it's a community event that she's doing from the Kerry Cliffs in Port McGee to the Skellig Experience and it is uh, tomorrow and for those that don't know um, the Cran Centre is a pioneering Irish charity they provide lifelong solutions for people and families living with neurophysical disabilities Hannah you're very welcome how are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. No problem at all. So tell us, what are you going to be doing tomorrow, or you're hoping to do? Um, so I'm going to be doing a walk from the Kerry Cliffs in, um, in Port McGee to the Skellig Experience in, in Valencia Island. Um, and it's all to raise funds for the Crown Centre, who I've been a member for for with for three for three years now, um, and you know they've you know they've provided me with a lot of service. You know, um, you know I'm very passionate about the Crown Centre and you know all the developments. Like the last year, the funds were put towards the inclusive playground, um, which which um, we had an opening day and honestly there was such an atmosphere there I loved the day I'd nearly do it all over again if I could to be honest yeah excellent um, it, there was such an atmosphere there there was so many different families and stuff and like the playground has like things like you know a wheelchair accessible seesaw a wheelchair accessible swing you know another type of a seesaw that you wheelchairs can go up one side and then come down the other side so it kind of promotes risky play and stuff. So that's probably one of my favourite pieces of equipment. And you know, like the the Crown Centre provides services like podiatry services as well for people that would need them and like continent clinics for people that would have spina bifida and stuff like that. Yeah, so it is. It is a vital um, charity, and uh, well done on doing your part for for it. So tomorrow, are you welcoming people along? And what time is it taking place? Um, so it's it's taking it's taking place um at 
half 12 from the carriage list in Port McGee. Very good. And are you inviting anyone? Anyone can come along, I'd imagine, like last year? Yeah, anyone can come along, yeah. The more the merrier. Very good. And uh, they can... There'll be, re- there'll be refreshments after the Skellige Spoon and live music with Jersey as well. Oh, very good. So there'll be a good a, g- a good crack to be had after as well and people can yeah. support it in that way by coming along um, and I yeah. presume you'll be doing a bit of fundraising at it as well so that, that's very important as well because like you mentioned the Crown Centre um, the vital work they do. Um, Hannah, thanks a million for coming on and best luck with it tomorrow um, and uh, hopefully the weather is good I think it's going to be good for it so um, what a spectacular two locations going from one to the other. What a beautiful little stroll. I couldn't think of anything better of a Sunday. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Very good. That's Hannah O'Sullivan there. And uh, the Crancentre.ie is where you want to go for more information on that. But it's taking place tomorrow um, from the Kerry Cliffs. So go along and show your support at half 12. That's Kerry Cliffs in Port McGee. Now, Bloss of Kerry, we're going to have another episode of that for you now. We're representing the amazing variety of family food businesses here in this county. And in this episode, we're going to hear the magnificent story of Forest Farm Free Range Eggs. And uh, we spoke to Colin Griffin in Drummond, who is the second generation. Series is a Maureen Nivahuna production, funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. This is Bloss of Kerry, a unique eight-part series where we provide an insight into the amazing variety of family food businesses represented in Kerry. Some of the most ancient of these trades goes back centuries, and in many of the family businesses we will profile are handed down from generation to generation. Our series aims to reveal the magnificent story and history associated with traditional family food businesses in Kerry. In this episode we hear from Colin Griffin of Forest Farms Free Range Eggs in Derriana, Drummond, Waterville, which is a family-run business specialising in free-range eggs. Colin Griffin, Forest Farm Free Range Eggs. We're located in Derriana, so it's about seven miles outside of Waterville, and we're just overlooking Derriana Lake and lovely hills. So are we going to go in and see them, Colin? Yep, sure. I'll take you in. Here are the girls. When you meet the hens, or the girls as Colin calls them for the first time, the first thing you're hit with is the cacophony of sound. And drinking system there, nipple feeders, so they have constant access to water. Then there's the nest boxes, go in, lay the eggs, and the eggs are rolled down into the conveyor belts and then we can pick them outside. So, there's the pickers in there, the hens will go in along, lay their eggs there in the morning. You've got track feeders then running around so they have constant access to food. Then the drinkers there. How many hens are in here? In this flock there is two, oh sorry, 3,000 in this flock. Okay, How do you feed them and then how do you there's, do it? There's automatic feeders there, they're on a timer so there's just constant access to feed. Then out through there they've got a scratch area that they can Irish weather is not the greatest this time of the year, so that they're covered and have a place, you know, to scratch and stuff like that. There's a 
A cock there as well, or a cockerel. Cockerel, he's just there to keep the girls kind of happy. Yeah. He doesn't, he can't really do much with them, but he's just there to keep them nice and calm. Yeah. yeah. And does that keep fertility up for producing eggs or anything no, like that? It no, just, it just keeps the hens calm and stuff like that. It's just a new thing that we've been trying out. The guy that I get the eggs, hens from, he suggested that. And this is where we pick the eggs. Just, they lay their eggs inside comes down through a conveyor belt then. Whoa. Yeah. So when we first started, we used to have to go in with buckets in the morning and walk around the sheds and pick up the eggs, but this has kind of been... Uh, so they're all under the, they're all under the nesting boxes? Yeah. The, egg, the eggs will roll out onto the conveyor belt, hit the switch, and pick your eggs here. That's a lot quieter out here. <laughs> a lot quieter and a lot less smell outside here. <laughs> Once the eggs are collected, the process of packaging begins. Uh, we're in the grating store here. Um, collect our eggs, up the table here. Then we stick them onto this table. They go around. Suction cups bring them up onto the grater. Pass down to a candling unit so we can check for cracks or any things wrong with the eggs. They're passing through here. There's a light. We turn on the light there. Then you can see cracks, blood spots or anything that's possibly wrong with the eggs. So they're perfectly out the door, in other yeah. words, yeah. Mm. yeah. Then they get stamped by a traceability code. Each egg has a traceability code so people know what, where they came from and all of this. Over here, you'd, they'd be coming down on these on different weights, so you'd have large, medium and small. Oh, that's how that's divided. It kind yeah. of goes on weights. It oh, goes by good. weights. And then they're packaged into... Packaged into our, pa our own packaging here because we, um, we sell our own eggs. We don't supply a packer, so everything that's produced here gets sold from here. It says Forest Farm free-range eggs on the box. What does free-range mean? Free-range means that they have access to food, water, and the outside area whenever they choose. Okay. So is that a difference to battery hemmed in? Yeah. Battery is caged. Okay. And then there's also barn and organic. How many people? Is it just yourself? Um, no, I have two other people working with me at the moment. Patsy's been with me for the last 20 years and his son Keen joined us about three years ago. Colin is the second generation to operate the business and it was initially set up by his parents. Um, my parents, they moved back from England in the late 70s and my father was working as a builder, my mother a waitress and... They were coming down from a wedding one day and saw free-range eggs for sale and just sparked them into their head. They saw a gap in the market down here that there was no suppliers and decided, yeah, we'll set up a business. So they registered with the Department of Agriculture, ordered 800 pullets from James Ryan, who we still deal with in Cork. His son Tommy has now taken over. And, yeah, now we have 10,000 hens 32 years later while we're fully in stock, when all the houses are full. What's a pullet? Pullet's a young chicken, so we buy them in at about 16 weeks and they start laying then at 21 weeks. The Ryan family, so that's a family as well that has been in this business yeah. and you're, you're kind of a second generation as well. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing that it yeah, continues yeah. on. Yeah, and I'm, I'm still dealing with um, Tommy, his son. He's 
he's one year older than me so we both took over our family businesses around the same time so it's good having sticking with the same producer and all of that you over 30 years together it's a good relationship when it comes to family businesses often there is an expectancy for the next generation to continue the story so was this the case with colin there was, yeah. Um, me and my little sister, we used to always help out when we were kids because it was very labour intensive at the start. But, you know, coming home from school, all of this. I went off to college and for a while I went working in bars because just didn't want to always have to work for my parents, go out on my own for a bit. Then I went travelling and after a few years of travelling, moved back home and, yeah, took over it's yeah I was happy to do it but it was a bit of pressure put on me as well to do it yeah you've um, a few kids yourself do they help out here not so much <laughs> uh, they help out a bit with packaging and stuff like that the odd time at the weekends if they're looking for pocket money or if they're looking for money to play Fortnite or something like that <laughs> <laughs> so where does Colin supply to who are my customers? Well, I deliver mostly all to Southwest Kerry, so supermarkets, hotels, restaurants. We do Carsevine, Valencia, Banaskelligs, Worthville, Tralee, Ratmore, Castle Island, Kimmer, Cara Daniel. So you're kind of all over the county? All over, the, all over Southwest. Um, there's other producers in the county as well, so we just try to stick to our own area instead of approaching on someone else's business. Like any small business operating in Ireland today, there are many challenges to face, and forest farm eggs are no different. When did you start to kind of going out on your own? Would it take it on yourself? Like how many I, years? I took over in 2009. So you're at it quite a, quite a number of years now, 14 yeah. years. What have been the biggest challenges in, those, in, in them times? Um, well, like uh, for every business, for the last year, things have been tough. Um, with the war in Ukraine, the price and fees has increased by 80-90%. Um, electricity prices, like everyone knows, has gone through the roof. Uh, packaging has gone up by 30%. And then with the outbreak of avian flu at the moment across Europe, luckily in Ireland it ha there hasn't been many outbreaks of it, but in England the producers there at the moment are having a very tough time same with the producers in Ireland with the cost of feed but just at the moment we're just trying to we're just working hard ourselves to maintain our price because we understand that hotels and shops they have to make their margin they have to keep their prices down low so we're doing our best to keep our prices at, at our current level but um it's difficult because like we're this documentary is all on food businesses and family food businesses yeah. and I suppose like they've been hit a, hit a lot over the last few years you mentioned all the different things not to mention the cost of living crisis now is the new one you know so it, it is tough I suppose do you, do you have to kind of concentrate on the quality aspect then and, and I suppose the difference in the product it's, that's the way for like a lot of people they like to know where their product is coming from and that's why we can guarantee that it's coming from a local farm down in Kerry um, restaurant B&B's that I deliver to they like me coming in early in the morning while they have, their guests are having their breakfast they see the van pulling up me walking out with trays of eggs so it looks good for that same with hotels everything and yeah it's just we try to maintain the quality make sure 
you know, that they can guarantee at least where their eggs are coming from. Eggs are used in so many things. I love eggs myself, though, but they, they can be used in so many things, like, you know, that, uh, that or add value to another product. So, like, for baking and things like that around the place, are there other companies that are kind of using your eggs? I suppose you mentioned the hotels, but they're kind of adding value to them by using the eggs. Yep. Um, I deliver to Katie Bakery in Carsevine, um, Mason Gourmet. They're a new customer now out in Khmer. They're, she found me on Facebook and yeah they've taken a lot um, then in some super values their delis take our eggs also So what are the good things about being involved in a family business? Good things like you're your own boss it's got like anyone who's self-employed it's got its own advantages and disadvantages you're always on call you're working seven days a week my friends like to think that I complain that I'm working hard the whole time, but then there's days where if things are quiet, you can go for a walk, come back to work, all of this kind of thing. You try to make time for yourself as well, but sometimes it can be hard. It's in one of the most studied locations in the world for a factory. I wouldn't call it a factory. Yeah. There's very much kind of the, uh, the agricultural feel here as well. Yeah. You're out in your own farming background as well. Yeah, it's a combination of both because the Department of Agriculture, we have a good relationship with them, but you're treated the exact same as a big producer like the majority of eggs in Ireland they're produced in Monaghan and Cavan so if any of your listeners opened up a box of eggs hopefully they're a packet of my own but if they look at the traceability code it's one means free range and then there should be a H and that means they're from Kerry Okay. Tell us about this building. It looks like it's kind of an old enough building, is it? What's the story behind this? Um, this was an extension on to that building over there. It was our original small little store. So when we first started, we had a little tabletop grader, and then we eventually had to upgrade because just... And for the egg stamper as well, we had to buy a new grader just to keep things going. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. You're listening to an episode of Bloss of Kerry, where we provide an insight into the amazing variety of family food businesses represented in Kerry. In this episode, we hear from Colin Griffin of Forest Farm Free Range Eggs in Derriana, Drummond Waterville, which is a family-run business specialising in free-range eggs. So what does a typical day look like? Typical day here, I drag myself out of bed early enough in the morning, hopefully I'm at work for 7 o'clock. First thing that I do is go and check on the girls to make sure the feeder's working correctly and they've got the water's working correctly. Then I'll pick the eggs, take them into the grading store, then I'll go out and leave the the hens out into the scratch area and... If it's warm enough outside, they might go outside in the fields then. You keep calling them the girls. Is that kind of an affectionate term? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to. Sure, They're keeping me going, so I have to look after them. So what is the scratching area? Scratching area is just a covered area outside for the hens because, as you know, Joe, down here you have gale force winds and rain. You wouldn't like standing out in the rain the whole time, so it's an area where the hens can scratch away and recovered from the elements, basically. We mentioned a family business, but there's probably the same family of hens that are coming here every uh, few years, isn't it? Yeah, every few years, it's getting them from the same supplier. So uh, with that, you know what quality you're getting from them. What breed of hen are they? They're a Highland, so they'd be um, a hybrid of a Rhode Island Red. Okay, and what makes them so special? Just the quality and everything. You get nice brown eggs off them. The um, 
they're a hardy breed and they're yeah and what what uh, does it take to maintain a hen like you know with animals I suppose there's uh, you mentioned disease control but like what, what do you actually have to do on a daily basis well? um, yeah just make sure that they have good quality drinking water and the feed is very important and just overall making sure the boundary fences for predators and everything like that is well maintained as with any business that has been in the family for years, you're building on the experience of those that have gone before you. So you learned all this from your parents, basically, yeah. was it? Yeah. 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 Where, where did they learn it? Trial and error, yeah. just experience, and that was it. There was um, support from a big support from Tagus at the start, and we have a good relationship with um, the Department of Agriculture. James Joyce is the head who comes down here and inspects us make sure everything is going all right and he always is there on the phone if we ever have any questions this business is going 31 years so like you, you, I, I get a feeling you won't put a pressure on your family to take this business over will you would, mm-hmm. would you like it to be to go on to another generation it would uh, it would be nice if some member of my family decided to take it over um it does come with a lot of pressure when you take over a family business because you don't want to see your what your parents put through all their hard work you don't want to see that fail so you're trying yourself it's it's extra pressure on yourself to make sure it stays afloat colin's parents are joe and joan and they have been a constant source of support for him during his time at the helm they're always here to help me out just give me advice and all of that it's yeah my mom me and my father we always think we always think we do everything right so my mom's usually in between us telling us She's the main boss, really. It must be handy, though, to still have that. Like, I'd imagine you like your own independence, but it's nice to have a bit of, I suppose, advisor, advisors oh, yeah. in the background. Yeah, they're always there as backup. They've as much experience as I think I've had with this place. They've got way more knowledge than me. And as we all are, no one works as hard as their parents. So, mm. yeah. And uh, what dynamic do they have when they work here? How do they work it? They were working morning, noon and night back when they started. Um, they used to have to go around pick the eggs from buckets in the morning. We were hand-feeding the hens at the time. My, it was a big investment when they first started here, so my mom was still working as a waitress. Me and my sister used to have to come home from school, label the boxes of eggs, and then, yeah, it was just all hands on deck back then. Did it teach you, I suppose the meaning of kind of work or hard work and things like that yeah it, is, it was one thing that they always did with us it was just make sure that you know put a hard days down and good working mentality into us demand for Colin's eggs is all year round but some periods are busier than others busy time of the year like every business in Waterfield busy time of the year is the summertime when all the hotels restaurants B&Bs are back open and yeah do you have to keep your eye on kind of what's going on uh, internationally or what, what they're doing in other farms do you ever visit other farms or do you keep your eye on what's happening in other places um, like that there's uh, during when um, the avian flu outbreak started there's a WhatsApp group in Ireland from all the egg producers so you're always in contact with them because a lot of the producers at the moment they sell to packing stations we're lucky enough that we're our own packing station so there you're having to sell their eggs to packing stations and at the moment the price that they're getting for their eggs is 
very low and they're having a tough time. A lot of visitors when they come here they appreciate um, when they go to a restaurant or they go to a hotel that there's a local um, ingredients, local product. So I'd imagine your customers have been great to you on that point of view over the Oh, days. yeah. We've had big support from all, every place that we deliver to. They like knowing where their projects come from. Same with their customers. They like to know what's actually on their plate. And what does Colin love about the business? What do I love about it? Um, I guess I love being my own boss. Every day it's a different job that I could be doing here. I could be delivering one day, bookkeeping the next day, which I don't really like. And yeah, there's, every day is kind of different. So what does the future hold for Forest Farm Free Range Eggs? Plans for the future is, at the moment, it's the way things are. It's trying to stay afloat, but um, hopefully, maybe in a few years' time, if things go well, to uh, make a new shed, upgrade equipment and such. Thanks a million for inviting me here. Cheers. Thank you, Joe. And I'd like to just thank all my customers. And if anyone wants to contact me about deliveries, um, yeah, drop me a call. Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. 066-712-3666 for your calls. You can text WhatsApp 083-300-3300. And my thanks to Colin Griffin of Forest Farm. Free range eggs in a drummit for welcoming me there. And we wish him all the best of luck in the future. Hi Joe, I'm enjoying your show as usual. Very interesting listening to Paul about the bees and now hearing about Colin and his hens at Charles. Yeah, lots of variety on the programme this morning and another person that's sure to bring a lot of variety to the programme is Bernadette Nereida for our Speaking of Poetry slot. Bernadette, you're very welcome. How are you this morning? I'm great Joe, thank you. And uh, (laughs) speaking about poetry but before we do that, can I speak a very quick short joke about the weather? I yes. talked to Manning from Ireland the other day and you know I was saying oh god I couldn't I'd have to sit in the shade and he had a lovely really dark tan and I said god you can take the sun and he said listen Bernie that colour came from Costa del Bog and oh. I thought it was one of the <laughs> wishiest things but anyway speaking about poetry and we're going to America for a port this time now and I should quickly say there's no shortage of Irish ports and it's a woman and that's for the gender balance and her name is Elizabeth Bishop but for speaking of America I have been, there's a man has been contacting me and he's actually listening live now in America. Men have been so, contacting you, is that what you said? Kevin Farmer. Oh, Kevin Farmer, okay. This man's name and he's in, and God bless him, uh, he said he's going to listen in live, but you know what? I can't say good morning to him because he's in pre-morning mode, but I'll just say a quick hello, Kevin. He actually met you, Joe, and he listens, he's a regular listener of your program and he loves it. Oh, I thought I should br- brilliant! Absolutely excellent. Yeah, I met himself and his wife at my uh, brewery, and you were telling brewery, me during yeah. the week yeah, that he, he tunes in now. And that's uh, another yeah. American listener to the books because we had one uh, last oh. week as well. Yeah, so we're we're yeah, building up so the listeners, good. the international audience. I'm, I was just about to say you've become Joe International, <laughs> and I know I know now you don't want me to say this, but he describes because we've been emailing him, emailing each other, and he said that your program. It's a sort of, uh, there's this persisting positivity and it's full of compassion, connection, curiosity and humour without being preachy or insincere. 
and oh, yeah. he, I think his man loves the programme so the top of the day to you Kevin and Kevin and, could be uh, a poet himself after that uh, <laughs> fairly eloquent yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> description eloquent way of putting things yeah, but, uh, um, so thanks oh. Mylene Kevin and uh, we hope that you'll stay with us and you're very welcome to uh, the programme and no doubt we'll be speaking to you on this side of the pond in the near future Elizabeth Bishop tell us about yes. her a tough upbringing Elizabeth. I was reading Oh my God, she, Elizabeth Bishop, and I'll just go through her, her childhood now. She was born in Wor- Worcester. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I keep thinking of Worcestershire South. Yes, but anyway, yeah. it's in Massachusetts. And talk about a tough life. Started off, she was only a few months old and her father passed away and she was an only child. And then when she was only a few years old, her mother was institutionalized due to mental health problems. And uh, so the young Elizabeth, effectively now she doesn't have a father or a mother, effectively. And she was taken to live with her mother's parents in Nova Scotia. And she was well looked after here and happy. And she she wrote about this period in, later on in her life. And um, I just... I could read a poem here where she describes it, and it's it's called. Uh, we, we spoke about the, the form of poetry, Joe. It's called, you know, it's Sestina, and I'll just read it, read through it quickly. Now it's um, there's repetition of the key words in the first stanza throughout the poem. So, <clears throat> September rain falls on the house. In the failing light, the old grandmother sits in the kitchen with the child beside the little marble stove, reading the jokes from the almanac, laughing and talking to hide her tears. She thinks that her equinoctial tears and the rain that beats on the roof of the house were both foretold by the almanac, but only known to her grandmother. The iron kettle sings on the stove. She cuts some bread and says to the child, It's time for tea now. But the child is watching the tea kettle's small hard tears dance like mad on the hot black stove, the way the rain must dance in the house. Tidying up, the old grandmother hangs up the clever almanac on its stream. Bird-like, the almanac hovers half open above the child, hovers above the old grandmother and her teacup full of dark brown tears. She shivers and says she thinks the house feels chilly and puts more wood in the stove. It was to be, says the marble stove. I know what I know, says the almanac. With crayons, the child draws a rigid house and a winding pathway. Then the child puts a man in with buttons like tears and shows it proudly to the grandmother. But secretly, while the grandmother busies herself about the stove, the little moons fall down like tears from between the pages of the almanac into the flower bed and the child has carefully placed in front of the house. Time to plant tears, says the almanac. The grandmother sings to the marvellous stove and the child draws another inscrutable house. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get... She was happy and well cared for with her paternal grandparents, but she had a thing about... She didn't like what some people call direct autobiographical poetry or some of us call it confessional poetry. But I think this is about her time, obviously, with the grandmother. And, like, the tears would be maybe the grandmother's tears who was probably worried about her daughter and she's looking at the child and all of that. But she won't, like... She always said, but I think she stepped, steps behind her own personal life and puts it out that way. Mm. But anyway, to continue there, when she was about six, she was moved again, this time to her father's family in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Elizabeth later referred to this move as kidnapped. Now, not in the literal sense, but yeah. she was happy where she was. And her father's family were quite well-to-do, and they thought they should take the child and, you know, rear an educator. And even though knowing that this big house that she moved into was actually the house where her father had grown up, she never felt at home or she never felt loved there. Mm. And a short while after moving there, she got quite severe asthma and was very unwell. And God love her, if things weren't bad enough, she was moved again. And this time she sent to live with one of her mother's sisters, Maud, in Boston. And now her, her father's family did continue to support her financially. 
So because of her illness, she missed a lot of her schooling and her aunt Maud used to read to her. She read the Victorian poets like Alfred Lord Tennyson, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Thomas Carlyle. So from a very young age, she was exposed to poetry. And she was writing poetry also from a young age. No, she also wrote short stories, but look, we're, we're dealing, talking about poetry. Mm. So despite her ill health, she did graduate from high school and went on to study, I think it's Vassar University in New York, and she graduated there with a bachelor's degree. This was in 1934, Joe, and I think that's also the year her mother passed away. So she had an inheritance from her father, and this was, enabled her, you know, to instead of having to go off looking for a job straight away, she travelled around Europe and went to North Africa, went to Florida for a few years. And as I say, she was financially okay. And I've already mentioned, but she was meticulous as well about her writing, and like she would leave poems sitting for ages if, she, if there was even one or two words that she was a bit uneasy about. Was she a perfectionist? Oh, she was. She was. She had a commitment to exactness. You know, she yeah. looked for this accuracy and she looked for it in all poetry, not just her own. But there is, again, when I when I say that, like, she, she kind of felt that people shouldn't be autobiographical in their poetry. But I think that she was, but she took a step or two behind it. There's there's a poem here now called A Fish. And I might go straight into that yeah. fairly, but I, I, I will just mention it afterwards and what I think, and I could be as wrong as Malbell, whoever Malbell was, but you know what I mean. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's called The Fish. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and his pattern of darker brown wa- was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost to age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice. Underneath, two or three rags of green weed hung down. His gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly. I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed. The irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil seen through the lenses of old scratched insane glass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet and weapon-like hung five old pieces of fish line, or four and a wire leader with a swivel still attached with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green light frayed at the end when he broke with two heavier lines and a fine black tread still crimped from the strain and snapped when it broke when he got away. Like medals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the bale of rusted orange, the sun-cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, 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 and I let the fish go. Mm. So... I understand. Now she was, she was, um, she believed in honing in, and she was meticulous, and she was the detail that she put into her poetry. And I'm, I picked poems that I, I know and that I think most people would know. And I think that poem, "The Fish," was on the Living Third Course here. But you know, getting back to what I was saying there about, oh, 
she didn't believe. I think this is her looking at her life in a sense, you know, that the fish was caught and where she is delighted. She calls, you know, the, the evidence of other times where he escaped, she calls them medals and ribbons. And I think that was her. And I think she seems, I mean, she might be a bit disappointed because he didn't seem to fight her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. But the description and the detail, it's like, I could nearly feel the water, the splash, the the whole thing, like the way she describes, like the ancient wallpaper and its pattern of darker brown. And she's looking at him and she's thinking of her own struggles, I think. And as I say, I could be as wrong as Maud Bell. And that's a saying I've heard God since I was a child. That <laughs> she struggled and she, the things she overcome because she also struggled throughout her life with alcoholism. Very good. Well, we'll hold you there, Bernadette, for a second because we'll right. go to a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about that. But just something that strikes me there as well. She was a visual artist as well. And that kind of comes across in her poetry there, doesn't it? You know, the, the, the visuals she paints. She paints that vivid kind of picture, yeah. and her imagery is always vivid in her poetry. So, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's, she's very talented. Very good. Well, we'll go to a break, and we'll have more from Bernadette Nereida after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly, Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. Yes, that's what you're listening to, and I hope you're enjoying the programme so far. Um, next Saturday morning sees Frank Lewis's uh, programme and uh, the centenary of the birth of Master Box player Johnny Leary in June 1923 will be celebrated on Radio Kerry from 9 to 11 next Saturday, June 24th. Producer, presenter of the programme, Frank Lewis, and sound technician Siobhan Lewis recorded in Schlievelukra on June 8th and 9th and heard Johnny's favourite jigs, slides, hornpipes and polkas and lots of stories guided by his daughter, Ellen Healy on tin um, while uh, on tin whistle and while uh, grandson Brian O'Leary on accordion and there's lots more besides in that programme it's next Saturday morning from 9 o'clock so join Frank for that and also um, Hannah O'Sullivan um, her family want to wish her all the best for tomorrow and that they are so proud of her and uh, so say all of us Bernadette Nereida joins us for Speaking of Poetry and we talk about American poet Elizabeth Bishop and before the break uh, Bernadette we were talking about her battle with alcoholism Yeah, that was another, another she had asthma throughout her life as well which she was very sick with as a child but that was another another struggle that she had was alcoholism which I know that she, you know, she battled that all her life struggled, so was the best word. I was saying there earlier that she travelled around a lot <clears throat> and she went off to Brazil, which was supposed to be, and this was in about 1950-51, it was supposed to be for a short visit, and she ended up living there for 15 years because she met a lady and became romantically involved with a Brazilian lady. And here, and there's a tragic because... So just, Bernadette, Bernadette, if you could just move to an, another spot there, we're kind of uh, losing well, you there. Okay. Um, so just uh, kind of move to... Um, yeah, that's, that okay? yeah, that's better. Away you go, right. flick away there, yeah. Okay. So I was saying that she went to Brazil, it was supposed to be for a few weeks, and ended up living there for 15 years. Now, she met a lady there in Brazil, a Brazilian lady, and uh, they became romantically involved. And also, here's another thing that ended, sadly, the, her, this partner from Brazil, she committed suicide in 1967. Mm. So I think because she was such a perfectionist about her poetry, she didn't publish huge volumes. So in her lifetime, now I know she died when she was, I think, 68, but in her lifetime she published around 100 poems. And that doesn't seem a huge amount considering that she was writing poetry all her life. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like that there's other poems. But for the last seven years or so of her life, she taught at Harvard. 
And I should, I would like to mention, you know, some of the accolades that she originally deserved. She was consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, the National Book Award winner, recipient of a Newstat International Prize for Literature. And I think she made it onto a U.S. postal stamp in 2012, and this was in her recognition, uh, recognition for contribution to poetry and the arts, I suppose. But before, there's another short poem that I'd like to read, and she had lifelong friends like Marion Moore, a poet, Robert Lowell, but a lot of their, their friendship was carried out through letters. She moved around a lot. But to one of her lifelong friends, the poet Robert Lowell, she said, when you write my epitaph, you must say I was the loneliest person that ever lived. Mm. And I can, you know, I can get the, the sadness and longing and loss in that. Yeah. And she died at the age of 68 from a cerebral hemorrhage. But there is a poem, and again, she, she was against the direct autobiographical um, aspect to poetry, but there is a poem that I like to read and it sums up all the things that I mean she had a terrible life really when you think about it yeah. and this poem is written in the form of a villanelle which is five tree line stanzas and then again there's repetition of key lines and things in it and that's just the, the short quick version of that yeah. but it's called One Art and it goes the art of losing isn't hard to master so many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. Lose these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. I love that poem. And to me, and again, look, people could maybe contradict me, but she lost so much in her life, Joe. And yeah. I mean... You know, her health, she had asthma throughout her life. Um, the, the struggle with alcohol, I would say it was, it was you know, reflective of all of this stuff. And when, from the time she was very young, like losing her father, and then effectively she lost her mother, mm -hmm. and going around from place to place, and like the poetry, um, you know, it came, as you say, a visual art. She also wrote short stories, but yeah. that... Lost her partner, yeah. She lost her partner. Yeah. She lost. Now she she was romantically involved with other people, but this this woman was a long term, like for fifteen years. Mm -hmm. But everything she she had, everything personal that she had, seemed to she seemed to have lost it. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. then she died very well, young to die, like sixty eight, and it was obviously sudden. She died from a cerebral hemorrhage, and uh, I just think she was a gifted poet. She really, really was because she had a way of putting exactness into her poetry and the imagery and that's what you that you picked up on that, like that she was also the visual artist and that comes across in her poetry This she believed in honing in on one thing and detailing you know rather than sprawling about several different things and it shows but I, to me I think she was brilliant I think she was a great poet yeah and you just uh, when you say that like I was reading 101 poems like yeah. it, that is yeah. that's not a lot when you think about it no. and and to think of what she achieved you know like the notoriety yeah. and and like you mentioned the awards and like yeah. Yeah. international yeah. top of your field awards like oh definitely and you see 
this, like, if you talk about a number of poems, 100, 101, if you pick up a book of poetry nowadays, like, there's definitely going to be 80 or 90 poems in just one collection. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, she published uh, Slim, but she was a stickler and that adherence to... There is another thing then that she had a lot of drafts and, you know, notes which everyone has because we're all right drafts and things that she hadn't released. And I think she wouldn't... I just get this vibe that she wouldn't have wanted anyone to see her work until it was polished. You know, she had this polished thing. But they were published, I think, when they had her papers after. But look, that's yeah. neither here nor there. Yeah. She was like this... Yeah. Sorry, Joe. She, I was only going to say she was this kind of brilliant person and uh, her personal life was, was really harsh, I think. Yeah, and uh, one of the most important American poets of the 20th century, according to the New York Times. Um, yes. Yeah, you brought another good one, Bernadette. Well done. Uh, very interesting. Uh, the lives are almost as interesting as listening to the poems as well of these people. They all, they all have lived such rich, varied lives as well. Um, that, yeah. that, that's all we have time for again, Bernadette. Thanks a million for uh, bringing us... Uh, that port and again we look forward to where you're going to bring us next month it's great. There's no shortage of ports anywhere. That's no, that's for sure. And uh, welcome to Kevin Farber once again, who is another uh, lister from overseas. And uh, yes. thanks again, Bernadette. We'll talk to you again next uh, month. Thank you too, Joe. Sloan for a while. That's the third Saturday of every month. Speaking of poetry with Bernadette Neareda. And what I always look forward to that uh, slot. Uh, brings us always wonderful poets and makes it so accessible to the likes of myself. And uh, I, I love that uh, about this uh, slot. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Thanks a million for tuning in. We're out of time. Francis is on the way, so keep it here on Radio Kerry. My thanks to Abigail Bernard, who was on sound. And remember, it's Frank Lewis next uh, Saturday morning. Until then, look after yourself and take care. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee.